0: In the opening verses of John's Gospel, it is written, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In a world in which so many voices and conversations offer a great deal of heat, but little light, your friends at 1517.org invite you to explore its podcasting network of 20 different shows. Do you have an interest in Christian history? Then Christian History Almanac will surely interest you. This five-minute podcast consists of stories from the past, ...about men and women, saints and sinners all, who helped shape the great tradition of Christianity. The show is brief, always concludes with a moving piece of prose or poetry, and most importantly, a reminder that everything is going to be okay. Are you looking for meaty conversations on theology, the movers and shakers of church history, and Christian apologetics? If so, check out the original show, The Thinking Fellows, going on seven years now. The fellows are sure to hold your interest. Perhaps you are looking for smart and engaging studies of the Bible... Then check out 30 Minutes in the New Testament, or 40 Minutes in the Old Testament, or both. These and a host of other 1517 podcasts are all available across every major podcasting platform, as well as at 1517.org. That's 1517.org. In each and every case, you will receive not only engaging talk, but most importantly, you will receive Christ Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior, Christ Jesus, the light of the world.
1: Welcome to Constitutionally Speaking, a podcast about the United States Constitution, early American history, and political philosophy. My name is Jay Cost, and with me is my uh, co-host and co-agitator, co-conspirator, <laughs> Luke Thompson. Luke, how are you today?
2: I'm well, Jay. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So I'm in uh, officially in the second week of the uh, book publicity and uh publicizing books is a very odd experience because it's very much the life of a hermit to write a book but then when you go to publish it you end up becoming like a used car salesman just basically <laughs> like stopping people on the street and begging them to buy my book so speaking of which so those of you out and constitutionally speaking land um i we have some some fun news first a reminder of fun news from the last episode we did which is that if you buy a hard copy of my book and reach out to me my email address is the letter j c o s t two four one at gmail.com with proof of purchase i will send you um a signed book plate um free of charge the plate is free the shipping is free Uh, Today is November 20th, and I'm going to sign my first tranche of book plates starting tomorrow and get them in the mail before Thanksgiving. So if you're thinking about this for a gift for a loved one, um, you know, you'd like an inscription, I can get it to you before Christmas, or if you just want one for yourself, that's awesome too. Just uh, reach out and let me know. And then Luke, I was thinking about this is, you know, since we are a podcast, we have a very uh, specific audience that enjoys listening to people nerd out about early American history, um, you know, listening as opposed to reading. And, you know, I, I noticed that we, a lot of people on the podcast or who listen to podcasts have bought, you know, audible versions of my book or otherwise just a, the audio book and, you know, signed book plate isn't really going to do very much for them. So we, Luke and I have decided that we are going to do another round of bonus episodes and if we had like high production values this is where you'd hear a trumpet go so we're going to do a bonus series on the history of the democratic party is what we've decided to do because we think that'd be a lot of fun we think our listeners luke and i were sort of thinking about this i think our listeners would enjoy history of the democratic party so we're thinking it's going to be a three-part episode up to the Civil War and then between the Civil War and the Great Depression and then from the Great Depression to the present day. That's what we're thinking, a history of the Democratic Party. So if you would like uh, these episodes, we haven't recorded them yet, but we're going to start doing that soon. But if you would like these episodes and you've purchased a copy of the book already, regardless of format, it could be hardcover, Kindle, Audible, whatever. Shoot me an email. Let me know. I'll put you on the list for the uh, for the uh, for the bonus Episodes, so very exciting stuff. But that's not what we're doing today. Today we are going back and looking at Congress, and particularly today, Luke, we are looking at the history—or not the history, but the shape today, and structure, and purpose,
2: and design of congressional committees. That's right. That's right. This is these are the sort of nuts and bolts of Congress, how Congress gets things done. Um, uh, how typically, when you see something. Uh, in Congress on TV, you're not actually watching people give speeches on the floor or debate. Sometimes you are, but oftentimes you're seeing people sitting at a dais um, berating or uh, heaping inordinate amounts of praise onto uh, some sort of hapless person sitting there um, <laughs> below them uh, it, with, with cameras shoved in his or her face. And uh, that that action all happens in committees. Um, there are a lot of committees, there are about 200 of them, uh, they have there are committees and subcommittees. They come in different types. Um, they do different things. But what's important is that they uh, they exist to um, to help the body of Congress as a whole reach informed decisions. And so they are they are at least in the the classic theory of of legislative committees, they are the information processors, the, the digestive system, if you will, of the legislative body.
1: Yeah, that is a really interesting way to put it. And uh, there has been a lot of really good political science research on Congress over the last 50 years, which I think is really cool, by the way, Um, because, you know, I think academia, and in many respects, rightly so, kind of gets a bad rap for being very vapid. Um, And having spent time, you know, both of us spent time in academia. um, I'm curious to know what your impression is, Luke, but my impression was there were elements of political science research, like I always thought when I was there that the political psychology stuff was always a little weak, Um, but I was always really impressed by the, by the research on Congress and particularly the ability of scholars to leverage Congress's voluminous data records for the purpose of studying it. And over the last, I would say, well, this sort of started in the 1970s where you begin to see rather the, less of a, what they would have called a behavioralist model, but a more a structural equilibrium was sort of the idea. And the thinking in the evolution of thinking within political science became that um, uh, committees exist to solve specific problems that legislative assemblies confront and that particularly members of Congress confront. Um, and there have been three, I think, the last, the last time I checked in with this, admittedly, was a couple of years ago. I'm not entirely up to date on the research literature, but there are sort of three big theories of what committees supply. Um, and the first one that sort of came out in this in the 70s was this idea of a distributive model. It's a really cool idea. And it's also known as this sort of gains from trade model. So imagine Luke and I are members of Congress, okay? Luke is from, let's say Luke is from, I don't know, West Virginia. He's from West Virginia. And I am from Silicon Valley, okay? Now, both of us are trying to secure benefits for our constituents. And me being from Silicon Valley, my constituents are going to be in the science and tech industries. And so therefore, they're going to want science and tech type of benefits. Luke's constituents are going to be in the energy extraction, natural resource extraction industries. And so he's going to want to accrue benefits for them. So the question becomes, all right, so I go to Luke and I say, hey, will you will you help me out with this? Well, the answer is no, because whatever I could use for, um, uh, for my constituents is no good for his constituents, and likewise for him, right? If I just am asking, if I'm trying to build a coalition for my little piece of distributive benefits for my constituents, I'm never going to get it, because my constituents are nothing close to a majority in Congress, and Luke has the same problem. So instead, what we do is we engage in a trade. I will vote for Luke's bill or Luke's little morsel for his constituents, and he will vote for my morsel. And that's known as gains for trade, or what's also commonly called a log roll. So the theory, the initial theory, and I think it's still true in many respects, is that committees in the modern era, in the era of sort of a big government that distributes benefits broadly, is they committees are the ways by which uh, these gains from trade can be secured because of course question becomes well how is how is um if if my v- bill comes up first and luke votes for my bill what's to stop me from just cheating on the deal with luke if his bill comes up second well that's where committees come in committees write the bills and so luke goes to the natural resource committee and he helps write the bill for his constituents that includes a bunch of other things i go to my committee i go to the science and tech committee i write the bill and then the committee has privileged standing to present its legislative instrument on the floor. And so the committees basically kind of lock in the trade that Luke and I established. So the idea then is that sort of, we talked a couple weeks ago, months ago at this point about, you know, members of Congress needing to prove to their constituents that they're doing stuff for the folks at home. And the committees are the ways by which they can accomplish that. So that's sort of the first one. Luke, What do you think about that as a, as a theory so
2: I think I mean look like there's I think it was a pretty accurate and apt description of the way the committees functioned during the the period of like long democratic hegemony post new deal um, because you had a couple of things going on um, that that made it function first of all, you had a considerable amount of ideological diversity within the parties right um, and a lot of this was a byproduct of the South being a single party state, but you had a lot of ideological diversity within within both parties. And so it was, it was possible to find points of overlap. Um, on the other hand, I, I think you also had a rapidly growing federal government tackling new areas of social problem, right? Areas that either had been previously left to the states, um, had previously not been viewed as government responsibilities, or... In many cases, areas of meaningful economic um, and material development around issues of say electrification, uh, industrial infrastructure, railroads, energy, um, the highway system etc so so you have legitimately large federal outlays for the purposes of uh, dams, canals i mean these are things that have been part parcel of log rolling for as long as Congress has been around, but during the twentieth century and certainly the first you know three quarters of the twentieth century or the middle to the middle half at the very right. least these these are things that are that are happening on on I, I think it would be safe to say an unprecedented scale do you agree with that
1: yeah I would and I think it also speaks to the fact that this theory is developed by uh Barry Weingast and Marshall I can't remember the guess, his name Marshall Weingast and Marshall in the late 70s so it makes sense that they're picking up on that development in the late 70s because it had been the dominant feature for the last half century. I also think it it speaks to the, as you said, it's not just so much that we have um, divided parties, but we have, I would say, weekly ideological parties as well, right? I think that there's a broad bipartisan consensus um, towards uh, a, a, an expansive federal government and an expansive foreign policy during this time, Um, which is why I think, you know, Goldwater looks like such an outlier during the period. I mean, I don't even think like even in the FDR years, I don't think there's much of a difference between Alf Landon and Franklin Roosevelt, you know, so I think, I think you're right. I think that that's, um, I think when you point out the weakness of the parties, I think there's also people are participating in politics less for reasons of principle, which I also think yeah. they pick up in the political science literature as well, or excuse right. me, in the in the political behavior, public opinion literature as well. And of course, a great irony, as our political, our more political sciencey type listeners will know, is that political scientists were like aghast at this in the nineteen fifties. <laughs> like, oh, we need ideological po- politics, and that ended up being like the monkey's paw, right? Of like of political science, like your wish is granted now deal with
2: it, right? Yeah, I was going to say we kind of have E-Schneiders like aligned cleavages and the yes. in society. but um Suck it. <laughs> right. But but yeah. leaving leaving that aside for a second, I think the other thing to keep in mind too is you really also have much more regionalized economies, right? Mm-hmm. So, um you know what I mean by that is consider the way the pharmaceutical industry works now, right? It is geographically concentrated in a very small number of districts and a very small number of states. Right? Um, that was true of a lot more sectors of the economy then you know it, it wasn't you, you didn't have companies with suppliers everywhere. You, did, you certainly didn't have things like the telecom you, you had Mabel, which was, right. I mean, was it even really a company, right? Like like it's not the same as the telecommunications industry or all of these other things that, that genuinely have purchase in in most of the country. You know, coast to coast, et cetera. And it's, they have consumers everywhere, et cetera. This was a time where, you know, I might be, you know, if where I'm from in Kansas, you had, you know, you had aviation, you had energy, and you had agriculture, right? Those were the three things you had to care about. And as long as you looked out for those three industries, you could probably do a bunch of log rolls on, you know, I don't know, silicon imports, right? That's right. Why not? Or or something else. And so there was I think there was some flexibility because you didn't you didn't have, as as you suggested, Jay, in the kind of economic or industrial base of the political economy, a nationalization either.
1: Yeah, and I think also one of the things that we've seen in the last it's, it hasn't been that long, and it's happened more in the Democratic Party than the Republican party, I think, um, is you see these um, members of the Congressional Black caucus. And you also see a lot of urban Democrats losing primaries to ideological, um, you know, the AOCs of the world. Like frankly, ideological extremists is—I I feel pretty comfortable calling them that. And and these would have been in the in the mid-century, urban Democrats would have been the masters at this kind of craft of delivering. You know, material, tangible benefits to their constituents, and you just see them getting picked off, which I think is a sign um, that the voters uh, don't really care as much—at least on the primary level. Primary level, you're seeing a more ideologically kind of, you know, sharpness to the electorate, and you know, I I think another example, Cantor doesn't exactly scan with this because his he had built a career in the party system. But Cantor would be a good example. Like you have the, you know, next House speaker as your member of Congress. He is going to be able to deliver enormous benefits for your district. Uh, But the primary voters didn't care. They elected Dave Bratt, who had no political background. And so presumably, not only do they go from being, you know, the number two, their district is the number two to district of republicans in the country but now they're now they have a freshman with no seniority but they also have a freshman with no seniority who doesn't know how the political game is played and ultimately indicated pretty stridently i don't want to play the political game so so that's i think that's right i think the first model is kind of that old model is not as useful the, the other model and luke and i've talked about this before and the other model i think dates back to the very origins of the party system itself um, although when it was sort of developed by Keith Creeble in the 90s, it wasn't, he doesn't really, at least as far as I remember, really build it from a historical background. But he has what he called, and Krebel's really great political scientist, wrote some really great books, um, really accessible writer too. Um, his book is called, or his book is called Information and in Legislative Organization. And his theory is that the committees primarily serve as information gathering. To, uh, Entities, members of Congress, to cut down on their political and policy uncertainty. Really brilliant idea. Kriebel's argument is that, you know, look, if you're a member of Congress, you have to vote on pretty much every subject under the sun because every subject under the sun is within the jurisdiction of Congress. And there is no way for you to develop the policy expertise requisite to make the right policy decisions for your district. And also, just as importantly, for members of Congress, to make the correct political judgment about how this is going to affect your reelection. So in situations of uncertainty like this, what do we do? Well, Creeble says we specialize or they specialize. So what members of Congress do is they break themselves into different committees. And the job of each committee is for the members there to develop policy expertise. And as long as there's trust between the the floor voters and the committees, you know, if, if like, let's, say, again, let's say Luke and I are political allies, and Luke and I are from different districts, uh, but Luke's on the, let's say Luke's on the Ag Committee, and I'm on the Natural Resources Committee, I don't know anything about agriculture, so I don't know what this is going to do for my district, but Luke's on the Ag Committee, he's an expert in the Ag Committee, I trust Luke. So if Luke tells me this is a good thing, you should vote for it, I'm going to vote for it. So it's way, that's a way to cut down on uncertainty. You have somebody you trust. Committees serve that function in Creeble's model, but on like a massive institutional basis. So what do you think of that model, Luke? I think that one still has some play. I so I'm,
2: I'm biased because Creeble is also uh, an alumnus of the University of Kansas. So oh, is, oh,
1: he is. Can I just say he is freaking awesome? He's great. He's, He's great. A great political scientist. Yeah. His, um, his book was such a joy to read, which is such a weird thing to say about a political science book. It's Congress. it's really
2: accessible. I mean, really pivotal is. politics is a bit more complicated, but but information legislative organizations is something that just about everybody can
1: read. Everybody. And can I mean,
2: so it. so it's, so it's and it's God, that book's more than 30 years old. Probably. I know, point, Right. It? Yeah, it is. Yeah, but, hey, I mean, the electoral connections got to be pushing 50. Yes, it is, which so, is something. Eh? Um, yeah, crazy. Well, without getting too uh, too nostalgic for things that Jay and I read in grad school. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I look. I I essentially subscribe to the the informational theory. Um, I think that log rolling definitely happens, um, but there's it's worth pointing out that legislating, you know, legislating in the committees. Um, you, you you might have a lot of log rolling happening in committees, but that doesn't mean that committees exist to to create log roll, right? right. Um, and those are, I think those are separate. It, there's a cart horse question, right? So the, like, the, the gains from trade model that Crabill is challenging, and that you articulated quite ably, Jay, um, doesn't actually have a A very well specified mechanism for why log rolling would require committees. Right. Um, So it says, look, people form committees so that they can make so that they can do deals on distributive goods that will help with their reelection. So there are a bunch of assumptions that are embedded in there, right? One is that distributive goods help with reelection. That's probably true in most cases, but not exclusively. Right. I mean, if that was exclusively true, then again, Eric Cantor would not have lost to Dave Brat. Exactly. Right. Um, then uh, what's his name? Um, old Man Crowley certainly would not have lost to AOC. AOC.
1: That's a great nickname for him, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph Crowley, um, I, by the way, that's who we're talking about. He was the chair of the Democratic Caucus and lost by like five thousand votes. Or yeah. He was
2: also the number. chair of. I think it was. It was either the was the Queens Democratic Party. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean like it's just there was there's no excuse for that man getting only 12,000 votes in that. But it, it but again like and yes as you pointed out you have this wave of reurbanizing bourgeois ideologues who have limited attachments to the geography where they particularly inhabit might move particularly
1: around need, they don't particularly need material benefits because they're prosperous right. too.
2: Right, so they don't need the distributive goods um and frankly if the overpass you know it becomes a problem they'll just move to a different apartment elsewhere yeah. in the city because that's they're not they're not dependent on rent control or things that fix you in a particular space in in that borough anyway right like that's good they point. might just move to long island city which is two congressional districts away right? right and and a few stops on on the train so you have so yeah you have this situation where um it it pre- i think it assumes a level of of political benefit uh based on distributive goods that may that is certainly not constant over time and certainly not constant over space and so so if there's a lot of variation there then it it is itself an inadequate mechanism for explaining why the need to get gains from trade would necessitate anything institutionally let alone then why committees are the best way to do that right so yeah, for that's instance a good point so for instance right a, a good a good counterpoint that i and i'm just coming up with this like on the mo on the moment here right um but for a very long time um universities in the united states didn't provide much in the way of formal student life right in in the 19th century they didn't even gen, generally provide much in the way of libraries and so um Students form student associations, reading groups. Uh, the the most conspicuous legacy of this is the the Greek system, fraternities and sororities, right? Um, and these were informal organizations that were you know intimately intertwined with the social life of the campus, but were not themselves a, 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 an extension of the university bureaucracy. Over time, university bureaucracy expands, and now I would say university bureaucracies are like insane, right? They, they don't yeah. even necessarily correspond to the social needs of of, of students, but Again, it's not obvious that the solution to needing to do deals is the creation of a formal committee system within Congress, as opposed to, I don't know, like, members of the Congress living in a series of boarding houses that they right. could, right? Like, there, there, are, other, there are other possibilities yeah, or I'm ways of an doing that.
1: Of that. That's a good point. So an example of a log roll that, was a, um, that came up in the middle of the 20th century was um, especially after the Supreme Court mandated one man, one vote for House districts, it was a real problem for rural farm districts because their numbers, their members just started disappearing. Compounding that, of course, it was the shift away from an agricultural economy. And the farmers were probably the first and greatest beneficiary from the New Deal, right? The farmers got the best of the best from at least the first new deal and the farm subsidies are probably the one thing from the first new deal in addition to banking reforms that are still actually out there um and frankly it was probably a good idea to subsidize the farmers because history has shown that when farmers are at their wits end they tend to radicalize right so the farmer uh Faction within Congress is is getting weak, and so they're looking for a place to, they're looking for allies. And there's a rising group of urban members of Congress, particularly minority members of Congress, um, who need social welfare for their constituents, and so they sort of anchor a deal whereby um, Congress will back food subsidies for the urban poor, um, thereby sort of strengthening the position of America's farmers, and to secure this deal Right. It it was why the food stamp program, as it used to be called, was actually placed in the Department of Agriculture. It's why that was there. And it was an example of locking in a gain from trade. But to Luke's point, that didn't you, you know, that would that's an example of a gain from trade that was locked in outside the committee system. So I think Luke's Luke, you're absolutely right about that. In the sense that you don't really need to have the committees to lock in gains from trade, right?
2: Right, exactly. Now that that gain from trade wound up getting instantiated in the agricultural committee, which is why you'll have somebody like, say, Rosa DeLauro, <laughs> who's who represents New Haven, which is an entirely urbanized congressional district with zero agriculture, in it, other than maybe some hobby farms or like some apiarists or something, <laughs> right? Right. Um, I, I can say this. I I lived in that district for almost a decade. Um, but the uh for the better part of a decade I should say. But like, you know, Rosa was the is the House Agricultural Chair, even though there's no agriculture in her district. Why? Well, because New Haven is a city that relies heavily on the SNAP program on on food stamps. And so um, you know, in many respects what happens now. Is and and what will probably continue to happen in the future is the agricultural committees will, under Republican control, be chaired by uh, conservative Republicans representing heavily rural districts, some of the right. large rural districts, um, and then under Democratic control, will be chaired by uh, urban Democrats representing cities. And so that log that log roll has become has become the informal log roll has been encoded in the committee but the committee didn't create the log roll the people who wanted the log roll saw the opportunity to make it and then moved themselves into the committee
1: right 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 so, so what do we think so, then about, go ahead Luke, please so
2: yeah so to to bring it back to the level of of theory um you know i i because i i don't think because i think that the the gains from trade model makes these jumps of logic that are intuitive but not but need to be made explicit what winds up happening is they see the as in the case of food stamps they see the causal arrow running the wrong direction right Mm, so they say right so they say oh the committees were created to facilitate trades and actually it's the other way around which is trades were happening even before the committee system existed but once the committee system became the forum that's where people moved to make them right and so so that there's because there's log rolling going on in the first Congress.
1: Yes, absolutely. right. There's log I mean, rolling. That's yeah. that's the compromise of 1790. Exactly. Or at least it's the way Jefferson tells
2: it. I don't. And think there's there's much. no committee system there right. then at all, none whatsoever. Right. I mean, there's log rolling that goes on all the time outside of it, and and a lot of this, as I said, is facilitated by the informal structures of government, like the boarding houses, like the dining clubs like, frankly, Thomas Jefferson's you know, dinner table in Washington, D.C. In Hawaii, during his presidency, that that allow the kind of communication of needs, bargaining, and brokering that goes into doing a deal to happen absent having a committee. Mm-hmm. So, so while a committee might be a sufficient and even an efficient means of getting deals done, it is not necessary. So
1: what do, what do you think about the uh, Creeble model?
2: Uh... So-, so I think the Kreeble model is, is much more apt um, okay. at explaining things. And it also has the advantage of, I think, being a bit more flexible in terms of time. So as things change over time, or political incentives change over the, the discrete political incentives of members change over time, um, it still applies. So um, essentially what what Krebel's theory is boils down to is that you need a kind of division of, of analytical labor within the legislature. Right. And um, so you have members who trust each other It in these might either be because they're ideologically sympathetic. Uh, they're people from the same generation, people from the same socioeconomic background, especially people who are from the, who are co-partisans. Right. They could just be people who get along and like each other. Right. There are lots of reasons, but you it. it I think you can sort of say, you know, there's an old joke about you know economists trying to get out of a, a hole and assuming a ladder. I think you can. <laughs> right. I think you can say in a in a large group of people, you can assume trust among dyads. You right. can't assume trust within the group as a whole, and you can't assume that it's it's stable across everybody. But I think you can assume that trust will develop among pairs of people, right? And so, in effect. Um, especially when that trust is reinforced by electoral incentives because they're co-partisans and if the party does well they do well if the party does poorly they do poorly electorally right then it makes sense to begin to divide the labor of analyzing the informational inputs that make up uh, signals to legislators between yourselves coming together and even if it's even if it's not you know functionally handing one another your whip cards so that you guarantee that you're going to vote the way the other person says you're still saying hey um you know I trust you you know before the votes just give me a rundown on on what I should say and and give me an explanation of why so I can go explain myself to you know whatever a donor who calls or some constituents or or a reporter mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that that to me seems like a it's a more efficient explanation of why committees exist, right? Because, um, you know, in order to process that information, you need a durable institution that survives electoral cycles, right? Right. And yet, you know, even if committees, even if the first standing committee develops because members of the legislature are spooked by the informational advantages of the executives, specifically Madison and his, and the the sort of what will become the uh, the the Jeffersonian Republicans are wigged out by... Um, by Hamilton's ability to jam through a massive program, Um, even if that's why the committee was created, over time, the fact that it persists means that personnel can come and go, but institutional memory lasts.
1: Yeah, I think that, I agree, I think Krabel's, I was, is it Krabel or Kreble?
2: Um, I don't know. I, I think it's Crable. I've always said Crable, but I could okay. be wrong. It
1: could be Yeah, Krabel. I don't know. It's always embarrassing too, because you It's really a little
2: embarrassing bad. too, because I've met him at APSA and, and mm, all right. yeah.
1: well, let's hope he's not a listener then. then I, gonna...
2: I I'm I, I feel pretty confident he probably is. Oh, is he? Oh. Oh, oh no, he's not. I don't oh, know. I mean, oh not. you had
1: me ah oh. oh, yeah, probably
2: I know, sorry. Sorry, That's Jay. Fine. That's all right. I had you very um, excited there for a minute.
1: I, I mean I agree with you. I think another thing too to bear in mind is that policy has become so complicated over the course of the 20th century. And the the task of government has gotten so much larger um, that, you know, you really need something like a signaling system via information. So I, I, and I think that's probably also why, um, you know, especially in the house, you know, most pieces of legislation, most major pieces of legislation, when they come to the floor, they come to the floor under a closed rule um and and which i think that you look at that and you say oh well that's you know the power of the party which it is because the rules committee is loyal to the speaker and the rules committee writes the rule and basically in a closed rule we'll get to this in a couple weeks when we do a legislative procedure but that's basically no amendments on the floor or very limited amendments or some sort of like it's not a free-for-all on the floor unlike in unlike in the senate um, and you'd look at that and you say, Oh, well, that's a sign of the of strong parties, which is party leadership. But you know, the, the majority on the floor can reject a rule if it wants to. And it rarely, if ever, rejects a rule, which is a sign that the floor majority is satisfied to trust the committee or whoever has put the legislation together, which is a sign, I think, consistent with 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 Krabel's, um with Crable's theory. So the third big um theory that has Uh, emerged and this was i think in the mid maybe in the 80s and then really kind of developed with like matthew mccubbins in the in the 90s is this idea of committees being avenues of party control in a couple of ways so committees are a venue by which uh, party leadership can reward members of congress with uh loyal partisans with with uh spots on committees um, and also committees become another venue by which the parties function as a legislative, the majority party functions as a cartel, restricting the flow of outputs. Like there's only, and what do I mean? by we'll, we'll, when we talk about the parties, I'll expand on this and because and, uh, I think we'll do the parties next. I'll expand on this idea then, but uh, just to sort of give you an idea. So uh, parties are... One of the functions that parties in Congress serve is as a legislative cartel. So, by that I mean, there's only so, like when you elect, like, there is a very narrow, minimal Democratic majority in the House of Representatives right now. And it's so minimal that if you, in theory, you could put pieces of legislation on the floor that would be Republican favored and you could pick off a handful of Democrats um, to enact them with such a bare bones majority. But those, pieces of legislation will never get it to the floor never get to the floor because that party functions as a cartel restricting the scope of outputs that could happen right so the only things that are going to be considered on the floor of the house of representatives so long as the democrats are in control are pro democrat pieces of legislation and if the republicans take control you know in 2022 then the inverse will happen and Journalists have begun taking to calling this the Hastert rule, uh, where popularized during the the speakership of Denny Hastert in the early uh, in the 2000s, which was that only if a majority of the majority doesn't want something, it's not going to go to the floor, which is a good way to think about it, except that that has generally been a rule. And or at least that is just an implied value when you have a strong, unified party You could just as easily have called it, Uh, the Gingrich rule, for instance. And so then the idea is that the committee system functions in the same way, where the committees are going to be tools of the party to restrict the legislative output and also a way, so what the committee business is going to be tailored to the agenda of the party. So it's going to function as, as an extension of the cartel, right? So the committees are not going to produce legislation that is going to embarrass or, antagonize or inje- in, it jeopardize the majority party's position. But then the committees are also a way to reward and punish members of Congress. And I give you, I, before I throw it to you, Luke, I want to give one example of this, because, you know, I think it's useful to sort of give real world analogs to this. Um, in 2010, no, I'm sorry, in 2008, the Democrats, well, they had the majority in the House, but the majority in the House expands. And more importantly, they get basically a filibuster proof majority in the Senate, and they get Barack Obama as the 44th president of the United States. Now it is looking very much like some kind of climate policy could be produced, some kind of sweeping liberal reform or whatever you want to call it, climate. And that, that was going to go through the Energy and Commerce Committee. The problem it was, is that, or at least from the Democratic Party's perspective, the problem was is that John Dingell was the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee and had been for a very, very, very long time. Dingell at this point was already the dean of the House of Representatives, I believe, which is saying a lot. Um, So it was a big deal for his constituents. And it was a bigger deal to have Nancy Pelosi basically defenestrate him. Basically is what Pelosi did was she booted him from Energy and Commerce from the chairmanship and she moved henry waxman who was the congressman from i'm not kidding about this literally the congressman from hollywood he was at the (laughs) government government reform committee he was the chair of government reform he gets moved over energy and commerce so that would be an example of the uh, party using the committee and pelosi wanting to get some kind of piece of legislation on climate to the floor that is consistent with the interests of the majority of her party, and suspecting that Dingle was not going to be the guy to do that, even though Dingle had moderated on climate over the years, because his district had changed. The reality was is that she expected, and probably rightly so, that he would drag his heels at least on the margins. So that would be an example in the real world of you know seeing committees as tools of the party.
2: Yeah. Um... Two two points on this. Actually, before I get to that, let me let me just say, and this is um, so, uh, McCubbins actually died earlier this year, in oh, the summer. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, he, uh, far too young. He, he'd had a lengthy illness and had had sort of semi-retired to Duke from. He was at UCSD for the alliance share of his career, and he's he was one of um, I think I would say he was one of the great collaborators in academic political yes. science. Um, I mean, genuinely, if you look at first of all, there's there's almost nobody who's a sort of Lion of American politics that he didn't co-author something with, and he he just anyway he was a, he was an extraordinarily important person in the field, who because he was an eager collaborator, it can be hard to like isolate his individual personal contribution, um, but that's in part because he's he he is he plays a role in so many different things, yes, um, and he was also I you know I met him very briefly. Once and so i don't have i didn't have like a personal relationship to him at all but uh he he was regarded as an excellent teacher as well which oh, is not always right. the case with with people who are no, are not. leading scholars so yeah his it was um That's you know his death this summer was not a surprise uh it it had been coming for a long time but it was it was uh quite a loss to the field um yeah, uh so anyway uh matt uh mccubbins his his argument that what's I think what's most important to understand about the the cartel theory of Congress is, or of the committees, two things. First, um, it's an example of how you know political science can be a really ungainly um, discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a lot of open flanks, and and uh, <laughs> nobody you can't really batten down the hatches. Yeah. Right. Um, that can also have some real virtues because, um, you know, like Krable, uh, McCubbins, imp- and f- and frankly, even like Mayhew before that, McCubbins imports a lot of stuff from um, you know the theory of the firm, uh, organizational trade theory, things like that, in order to interpret Congress. So he right. brings material from other disciplines in, and that helps shed a light on 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 subjects that had become maybe a little stale, right? Um, his books are not as accessible as Keith's. You know, Legislative Leviathan, which he wrote with Gary, Gary Cox, is a really, really good book. It's not. It's not light reading. Um, Logic of Delegation is a really good book. Uh, but the the so the point that I was making. Sorry, I, I'm getting a little sidetracked here. But um, you know, there was the he, he's he's able to shed some interesting light using these alternative pieces, but what's important to keep in mind is that he's often biting off smaller problems than his his epigenees or people who cite his material think he is, right? Mm. So for instance, I don't believe McCubbin's ever articulated a theory of why the Senate has committees.
1: Yeah, that's right? a good point.
2: He's his his books are entirely about the House, about the administrative the, the application of administrative rules to the House. Um, you know the logic of delegation is just about the appropriations process, right? It's just one of the things that the House does, and so, in some ways, um, you know, it's this—it's following on this uh, this Fennow approach of taking a thing and just deeply investing yourself into this one part of of the the entity. Um, but because of the way in which he answered these questions uh, using outside material that. Spoke in a generalized and more abstract way. I think it was easy for people to make the elision and say, "Oh no, this is a this is a competing model of the account of legislative uh, administration or structure generally," and that's not really what he was doing. Mm, um, I, I also think, I mean, I don't know. Again, I haven't read this stuff in quite a while, but I don't know that McCubbins articulates the disciplinary, the partisan disciplinary function as causal. Mm, okay. So much as why it might be preservative of the committees. Okay, right. So so it's it, I don't think he explains it as that's why the committees originated or even necessarily why they persist, but that it is one of the reasons why leadership is tolerant of it. Um and you know, he he also saw himself, and, and I think you could I think the entire mcnoll gast that's one of his he, he and a couple other guys wrote under a under a I don't know pseudonymous portmanteau
1: um <laughs> McNoel-gast.
2: yeah mcnoll Gast. um uh so he you know one of the things they were pushing back against was a kind of academic fatalism about congress where you know, after the 70s, everyone's concerned about the imperial presidency. Part of this is because liberals are freaked out by Reagan and, and there's and and the like long Republican hegemony in the presidency. And and they're saying, you know, you guys are talking about Congress engaging in abdication by focusing on all of these things Congress isn't doing, but let's have a look at what Congress actually does mm. and let's unpack all the things that it, it in fact is doing. And and it I think it was an effective pushback on some of that. You know, on some of that, um, frankly, I don't want to call it this resigned mode of analyzing Congress, because as anyone who's spent a lot of time around Congress can tell you, like, yes, there's a way in which the top line issues, you just look at them and you're just swamped with the sense of futility and stupidity and nihilism, right? (laughs) But like, but Congress is a lot like a, like a, a demented duck, where it may look futile above the water, but there's furious paddling going surface right and so um you know one one of the helpful components of that entire line of research was to say look at the feet right don't focus on the plumage look at the feet, look at what it's doing um and and i and again i i wouldn't i wouldn't want to give i don't want to make the mistake a lot of people do and overstate the scope of the claims made in it um, because I do think there's, there's something to be said for the notion that the committees are valuable to leadership as disciplinary tools, right? On the other hand, you know, why are they valuable for disciplinary tools? Well, they're because it gives you the opportunity to interpret information for your Confederates within your caucus within the majority to make legislation, right, like it, it is not necessarily in contradiction to a Crabillian Krab- a account. Of the informational organization, the informational theory of congressional organization, because the cartel model can work in the service of individual oh. member aspirations.
1: Right. So ultimately, given Lister, an informational sort of thinking, would be that the Wine, Gas, and Marshall model of gains from trade is kind of antiquated, and that we have the durable utility of part of committees is informational gathering. Has merged with the strong party cohesion.
2: Yes, yeah. I mean, I I think so. I think. Yeah. I mean, I would also say that just from my own work in politics, like there's a component of the committee systems which is you got to keep them busy doing something. Mm, interesting. And um, because God, if you give them spare time, that's a bad idea. Mm. Like, trust me, you do not want legislators with spare with time on their hands. It's not not good. Well, so. I- Uh, So, so, you know, the committees have, frankly, they've, they have become, and and this to some extent goes back to the gains from trade model, but it's a very explicitly electoral partisan one. The committees have become sites for individual behavior, right? So uh, you can do things in a committee, get filmed, take that film and stick it in a commercial and it, it, it has electoral returns. Right. Right. Um. Is it legislating? No. Are you no. are you generating distributive goods for your constituents? No. Are you creating inputs into television ads that make it look like you're standing there fighting the good fight and, and opposing the evil people? Yes. And so there's a there's a way in which the gains from trade theory is kind of right, but for different reasons, because mm-hmm. they they have time-delimited understandings of electoral incentives um, that are that are too fixed right so it's on the one hand it's un, it underspecifies its mechanism and it over determines its um it's or over or sort of over specifies its uh its definition of electoral incentives
1: interesting so- right
2: so the so the reason so you you they they misapprehend how broad a set of electoral incentives exist and then they fail to define Why the specific types of electoral incentives that they see necessitate committees as opposed to some other structure?
1: Interesting. So one of the you mentioned this a moment ago, talking about McCubbins and his narrow, his narrow research question, specifically about how he was not talking about the Senate, right? And and we haven't really mentioned this, but I think like implied in this conversation has been. We are mostly talking about the House because committees in the Senate do not have the same kind of function that they do in the House. In so far as they, are, they serve these functions in the House, they serve them to a much weaker extent in the Senate or not at all. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Well, one with, other... with
2: one exception. Which is the which is the electoral incentive side? That right. I just yeah, taking, that's yeah. a good point. Which it, is it, even stronger in the Senate because all those yes. people think they're going to be president.
1: Right, and that's true. And also, when you're, um, you know, when you're a senator, you have you know, millions of constituents. And, and so the really, yes. realistically speaking, the only way to communicate with them is through television. That's a good point.
2: That's right. Um, you also, you also have confirmations, which are, yeah, which, yeah, a much different beast than a legislative here.
1: Yeah. So let's put, yeah. So let's put the issue of confirmations aside, because, you know, when yeah. you think about confirmations, um, committees in the Senate can seem more important, especially like in the judiciary committee, right. um, for Supreme court nominations put that aside because that is a different that's a different subject.
2: And we should actually we should just do an episode on conference.
1: I uh, yeah I agree. Um okay. and when when we're thinking about committees in the Senate and there's a couple sort of there's a couple reasons they're weaker for starters. Um there are there is no rules committee in the Senate. So there are is there there is an open amendment process in the Senate, at least on in theory. When we get to the um the the episode on procedure in the senate we'll talk about how the majority leader can sort of get around that by so-called filling the amendment tree um but f- at least in theory you can uh, you can offer any amendment to a piece of committee work on the floor of the senate at least in theory which you can't do in the house unless the rules committee allows you to um so that that d- means that again in theory committee products are not as privileged in the Senate as they are in the House. They could be adjusted. Another, which makes them sort of less useful as sort of binding the floor and locking in the informational partisan advantage or whatever whatever the committee function serves in the House, a lot of that requires its product to be uh, privileged on the floor, which they don't enjoy the same privilege on the floor. And then another thing is that senators, because there's fewer senators... And they have, as Luke indicated, they're all running for president, um, or at least most of them within a certain age range are running for president. Like, um, you know, Chuck Grassley is not running for president, yeah, to put it that way, right? right. He right. would be one of those guys who's not running for president. But there is a, the senators within a certain age and ideological range are all running for president, right? It, it, if they're not actively, then they're keeping their options open. Um, or maybe at the least to say they're not not running for president.
2: And, and frankly, up until McConnell, that included the Senate majority leader, right? Yeah, that's I mean, a good
1: point. Yeah, Bob ja- Dole, Dash-
2: Dole ran multiple Dashiell times. Dashell thought, right. yeah. thought about it. Yeah. Dashell thought exactly. about it. Dashell ran. That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's, in fact, the the specialization of the Senate majority leader as a non-presidential figure is a relatively, it's that's it's been new that way phenomenon. in the past, but it's God. relatively new.
1: Yeah. That's a new phenomenon. That's a good point. Um, and, and so- What they often will do is they'll take advantage of the fact that senators will take advantage of the fact that committee work is not privileged on the floor and they'll just write their own pieces of legislation. I mean, we've seen this over the years with the variety, and you've seen this like the gangs. There's always talk about the gang of six, the gang of 12, the gang of whatever. Um, Those are basically what they are is, you know, ad hoc committees that just form among members of the Senate to drive some kind of policy solution um, that operate without outside of the committee. And, and a great example of sort of the weakness of committees is John McCain. McCain bounced around from policy domain to policy domain Without any regard for committee boundaries, because that was just kind of the guy he was. He wanted to be involved in everything, and so he was. Another example that probably would have been Arlen Specter, right? Arlen Specter, who was a senator, Republican senator from Pennsylvania, from 1981 until 2009, at which point he jumped over the Democratic Party. Um, he'd be another example—the guy who's always in the middle, all his votes always up for grabs, and so you have to come track him down and you deal with him. After you've dealt with everybody else, because he's the last vote that you need. And, and you know, that sort of speaks to another difference between the Senate and the House is that let's say the majority leader has 217 votes locked in, and you're the 218th. Guess what? You're gonna vote yes. You as a lowly House member are not gonna stand athwart 218 other members. Ah, but if you're in the United States Senate, you are a titan, sir or ma'am, and you are a potential president and you are, you certainly see yourself that way. And or you see yourself as one of those noble, moderate deal makers in the center, like a Susan Collins or a uh, a Ben Nelson or an Arlen Specter, and by gum, you're going to make a deal that's worth good for the country, and you will stand up. So what does that mean? That means a lot of times committee products get negotiated at the very last minute, oftentimes in very substantial ways to lock in the final votes. So committees don't serve as great a function in the Senate as they do in the House, but Luke, I. So I have one final thing, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about this. As somebody who is, you know, our audience knows I've sort of gone off to live this kind of monkish life of writing about the founders. <laughs> and my head is stuck in history books, you know, because our educational backgrounds are very similar, but and our interests in politics are very similar. But whereas I've gone off to sort of specialize in American political development, you have are much more have much more contact with the functioning of modern politics today. And so I want to pose a question to you, if that's okay, not to put you on the spot. Sure, sure. Um, To what extent are we moving into an era where committees don't matter at all because we have these omnibus bills that cover so many different policy (laughs) domains and get tinkered by leadership at the very last minute? I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Uh, The Obamacare debate, you know, that was an extraordinary... Event to watch a couple of years ago. Well, I guess it was a decade ago, if you can believe that. But you know, what happened was initially the, the bills were sent on the Senate side, and on the House side, they were sent to specific committees. So the House, like um Ways and Means got a copy of the bill, Energy and Commerce got a copy of the bill. I think health education and labor got a copy of the bill. Maybe that was the Senate one, and then Senate finance got a copy. And so they all wrote these bills. And then they all produced the bills, and then the bills went to, in the Senate, they went to the majority leader, um, and Harry Reid, and then in the House, they went to the Speaker. And the Speaker and the majority leader just picked the parts that they want and basically redrafted the bills and put them on the floor. And, And we are in an era now of just these massive, omnibus pieces of legislation that are, I mean, now, admittedly, there is the work of committees Embedded within them, but to what extent has this sort of massive, gigantic bill-like making process just empowered the party leadership to effectively write legislation um, and really sort of removed the role of the committees?
2: Yeah. So, oh, um, okay, uh, there's there's a lot to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the so, so it's undeniable that. The leaders of in, the party leaders in their respective chambers exert far, far more power and control now than they did in in the recent past. Certainly, in the last like forty years, um, and that a lot of policymaking gets channeled through those leadership offices. Um, I think a byproduct of that is that well, no, not a byproduct. Of it. So. There's one question, which is why is that happening? There's a separate question of of what does that mean for the committees? Right. Uh, those it, there there might be an inclination to assume that because the committees are moving that th- those are separate questions, but they kind of flow back into one. Another, right. Like mm-hmm. um, legislative leadership has filled a a competency gap that the committees have sort of created. Right. Like the committees are are not as effective at generating good policy as they seem to have been in the past, does that make sense? yes um and so while on the one hand, yes, I think party leaders always would have liked to, to assert near dictatorial control over the chambers <laughs> um, uh they they also have in some ways been filling a gap that was created rather than 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 there being a struggle between the committee chairs and the leaders and and one bit of evidence you have for that is that you know, McConnell during the Trump administration for about a year and a half manages to damn near return things to, to regular order. Yeah. Right. And so if it were just a question of a zero sum game between leadership and committees, why would any leader ever voluntarily give up power? Mm-hmm. Right now, again, the Senate and the House are different. The House right. has pretty much always been a dictatorship. Yes. Um, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but a friend of mine uh, who, who was until relatively recently a house staffer uh, jokingly described being in the minority as, as working at a think tank that holds roll call, roll call votes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but that's an important function. And that's what the committee's come into And I'll get, I'll get there in just one second. Um, so part of it is that as a leader, when you're trying to reconcile the incentives of your entire caucus, one of the best ways to do that is to say, go do, you know, you know, go do you like have fun. Um, oftentimes, we make the mistake of assuming that the centralization of power comes from a position of strength rather than a position of weakness, and that, that in fact, um, strong leaders or leaders who want to be strong uh, will find that the best way to, to strengthen their position over their, their constituents is, in fact, to just let their constituents do what they want up to a point right and so the committee system is a very very good way to burn off the the ambitions and energies of of members um and so that's part of why you know leadership leadership doesn't want to be responsible for making every single hard decision because that's a great way to be to to get members of your caucus pissed off at you um who who want to and want to get rid of you right whereas if if you can instead say to Senator X, sorry, Chairman Y is the reason we're not putting your set puppies on fire amendment in, in the bill. Not my fault, not my call, okay. you know, take it up with Chairman Y. Um, that's good, that, that lets you defray blame. Um, the other thing is, is it's not as if, I mean, yes, leadership has a lot more staff, but they don't have in, endless staff resources. And so, you know, these, these bills are are overwhelming and, and extremely demanding for them as well but i think also what's going on and this this is the bigger point here, is that there's kind of a like crypto legislating process that goes on across multiple congresses and that's what's happening in the committees a lot of the time and because of the, the i won't call it the incoherence but frankly some legitimate administrative difficulties around scheduling in the congress today based on what members perceive their electoral incentives to be, um, the, the, the omnibus bills are simply helpful procedural mechanisms to do all at once what in the past would be done through 11 or 12 bills.
1: Mm, okay,
2: right, interesting. So so instead of seeing them necessarily as just the continue, you know, oh, we're, sh- shoot, we're out of time. Let's press the, you know, hit the, hit the snooze button, so to speak, on legislating right? And just keep things going as before. It's, we're getting to a point where the committees do work to generate lots of ideas, and then they all get wedged in at the end.
1: Mm, Okay. Okay.
2: And it's, it's, so instead of things coming out in regular order, they may not even pass out of committees necessarily, but there are, there are like what you might call legislative assets floating around.
1: That are produced by the committees.
2: That were produced in committee, if not by the committees. Okay, right.
1: right.
2: So there, there are still things that go by the book, right? Like, like the NDAA more or less goes by the book. That's the
1: National Defense Authorization Act, which is yeah, required. Yeah, every two years, you have every to, two ba- years. you have to, that's in the Constitution. You have to basically say, okay, the Army and the Marines and the Air Force are hereby funded. Right. Not specifically. The the
2: Army. Oh, s- specific- specifically. The, well, the, yeah, the Marines are part of the Navy, but s- okay. specifically, yeah. yeah right. the, um, so so yes, I mean there are things that still go by the book. Um, I, I, you know, it's very difficult sometimes to tell what's going on with the intelligence committees, and right. there's there's a real risk of bureaucratic capture there for a bunch of administrative reasons. Which, if if people are curious, we could even do an entire episode on the creation of select committees and in intelligence and the mm-hmm. relationship between Congress and the, the security services. But um, the, you know, those are also done by the book, although their book is a little different than everybody else's. Okay. Book um where it gets interesting is if you're an if you're a a a legislative entrepreneur right if you're a member of congress and you have an idea whether that's that idea is i want to build a you know i want to rebuild bridge x or you know we should fundamentally change the way we i don't know calculate medicaid rates for you know women over the age of 35 whatever right (laughs) okay you know i'm just making things up here right um whatever the or 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 like how we how we calculate water cleanliness Mm -hmm. sure any of these things um what will probably wind up happening is you flesh your ideas out in committee over the course of a couple congresses and then you just wedge it in at the end you wedge it in
1: okay so you're oh this is an interesting okay well i mean
2: now this is now again what this means is that the personal relationship of individual members to leadership becomes really important because, because leadership
1: relationship with the leader to so that, because it, nothing, these things are not necessarily going to happen on a formal basis. They're going to be taken up or not taken up at the discretion of the leadership.
2: Right. And, and in fact, what might happen is leadership uses the formal system as a mechanism of punishment, Mm, right? They say, actually, you have to go through the formal system. We're not going to put your, you know, people will say, you'll see this if you look at the communications from members of congress especially in the house but actually no in the senate too they'll say you know the the we just passed um a bill that contain or we just passed x which contained my uh you know saving american patriotism act right right and which was written
1: like wedged in
2: yeah which was written as a standalone bill and kicked over to a committee or two and then just got wedged in right? got wedged. so in. Interesting. you know so then yeah.
1: in that sort of So in an era of strong leadership where leaders have the discretion and leaders are also under time crunches in terms of legislating, then committees are – maybe this is – what you're offering us here is almost a kind of a think tank plus vision of committees then.
2: I mean I I do more or less think that's what they are, and I mean I think that applies to select committees, Mm -hmm. uh, to, to standing committees, and to temporary committees okay um, i mean i don't know about joint i i don't have a lot of eyes
1: well i, I mean committee. who's on i mean what the joint committee on printing
2: <laughs> yeah i i mean
1: i mean who cares like, right i i i, I well, i'll, I'll tell you i'll tell you
2: who who um who cares is people who want good tickets to the inauguration oh oh
1: i did not realize that oh yeah the yeah on printing so once every four yeah years,
2: roy 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 blunt um is so roy King. blunt is oh, is the is so he, he's retiring now, retiring Senator from Missouri. So Blunt lost a deputy uh, whip race to Eric Cantor. Um when Cantor was a so in the house, when right. Cantor, I think, was a sophomore. Right. Blunt thought he was gonna win it. So Cantor wins. Blunt now realizes he's fallen off the leadership tree, um, or he's been jumped, which means he's kind of done. He's right done. Yeah, on a route to speaker. So he decides, even though he'd always planned to to stay in the house, he decides to run for Senate. And then once he's in the Senate, um, he becomes the, the the master of of the administrative committees, and um, that the guy oversaw something like four inaugurations.
0: Oh, that's
1: amazing! Good for yeah. him. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. I mean, I guess the sort of uh, concluding thought for me is just, you know, committees remain. I mean. The, the, and I, I think this sort of gets to the challenge of Congress, and we talked about this—the institutional challenge of Congress—is that when you have um, an organization of 535 people, all of whom exercise a kind of sovereignty, you know, you need you need fairly elaborate architecture to facilitate that decision making, and you know, and I think it speaks to the. Um, the compatibility of these different theories of committee organization, which is that nobody sat down at any one point in time and developed these organizations. Right. But they were sort of built up over years as ways to address problems, and then they were adapted as ways to address problems. And so, what you have in Congress is a very clunky system that nobody intended, but still exists and continues to exist. Because they solve problems for legislators. And I think ultimately, you know, to sort of swing this back to a previous and we're going to talk about this when we get into floor procedures and we get we get to uh, party procedures is that ultimately all of this exists because members collectively believe that this is the best way to enhance their reelection prospects. Or whatever political goals they might actually possess, and so while the committee system is clunky and it's it's evolved and changed over the years, it still serves fundamental purposes and and I think you know the challenge i think for the average American to understand congress is is that it's incredibly complicated um and it's very you know it's a very complicated system and 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 like i you know i 10 years ago, I was very well read on the literature of the committees and I understood it. But now I, like as the last 20 minutes I'll probably illustrate to the listeners, like I, I'm kind of at a loss and so needed to lean on Luke to help me understand committees now. I mean, that's just it's not just that they're complicated in and of themselves. It's just that they're always their function and purpose is always changing and yeah, all this stuff just kind of, you know, it's it's sort of They can be repurposed, like constantly repurposed. And frankly, like I think in another 10 years, if you were to pull out this podcast episode, you'd probably say, well, that's not how they work anymore.
2: Yeah, I I mean, if I can build on that just a little bit, Jay, because I think that's an excellent point as an upshot for people, is that the the committee system is structured enough to let Congress meet the the electoral needs of its members, but open textured and mutable enough that it, it, it generally shifts to adjust to technology or or changing political incentives. And you know, one of the easiest ways to look at this is that you know we talk about the committee system, but in reality we don't really have a committee system, right? So what do I mean by that? Well, you have a set of standing committees and they're all divided into different tiers, right? Let's just talk about the standing committees. Forget the special and and the select committees and the joint committees, right? The standing committees do 99% of the work. So right, that's the Talk about the standing committees. Um, you know, those guys, like Hask has 60 members, right? That's the House Armed Services Committee. It has more than 10% of the body is a member of that committee, right? Um, by contrast, Rules, which decides how the House functions, has uh, like 20, maybe, probably fewer. Um, and two thirds of them are in the majority. Uh no it has uh it has like a dozen. Um I'm just going through in my head how many people but then they're like 12, right? And what happens is the majority always has about 8 or 9 and the minority always has like 4. Right. Because when you're in the minority in the house there's no reason to be on the rules committee except that you want to be the chair the next time you get the majority right. back. Right. Um because you're just totally powerless on the rules committee in the minority. And and the people who staff the rules committee tend to be your sort of harder edged partisans, right? Because the job of the rules committee is to govern with an. I mean, they're
1: they're the sharp edge of the partisan sphere.
2: They're they're the hammer. They really are the hammer, right? And so, um, you know, the rules committee is as powerful as Hask, but it has, you know, a fifth of the members. Right. Right. On the other hand, Hask is indisputably higher status than rules. Right. Right. Absolutely. Which is weird. And Hask has sort of more tangible uh, distributive benefits than, than um, well, and so Rose
1: has like no distributed.
2: Benefits. Yeah, it has zero distributed benefits. It has tons of partisan benefits, but it has. But, you know, but it has no distributive benefits. So it just it's it's a scenario in which we may these are both standing committees of the House of Representatives, but they are not the same. It just fundamentally
1: different purposes.
2: Exactly. And so the – in some respects, the organization of Congress in these committees is not – it's not reducible to when we talk about a thing as a committee system.
1: Right, or a single theory is the Uh, explanatory theory.
2: Exactly, right? right? Yeah,
1: there's probably – there are pockets where – within Congress where the distributive theory still is very apt, Right. Right, there would would be pockets, and there are
2: also pockets where it probably, at least according to people I've spoken to who have worked for or have been members of, like the Intel committees, because everything's classified and everything's secret. Like, it 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 sort of looks like Philadelphia in some ways, right? Like Mm. people are, you know, there's not a lot of staff, right? Um, Staffing is severely restricted on the intelligence committees. Uh, These guys spend all day in a skiff right um sorry that's a secured classified information facility that's the the place where you can read classified stuff on on capitol hill um and they can't talk about what they do right so it's just it's a very different
1: we don't even know what that is
2: really yeah um it's a very different thing
1: i mean another example too would be you know the senate foreign relations committee is a place where presidential aspirants go To preen about foreign affairs and burnish their credentials in advance of their run, which is a completely different function
2: than, than for instance, also the the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which is just a total dead end because they don't do anything.
1: Right. Yeah. Because they
2: don't ratify treaties. They don't.
1: Right. Exactly. That's a completely useless committee. Or
2: well, basically, right.
1: Okay. Well, I think this has been a very. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this episode. Um, you know, it doesn't have the grand sweep of like our historical overviews, but I think that it's. You know our goal with this is to really help our listeners understand Congress on it on a more like when you read the newspaper, you get a sense of what well, what this actually is, you know, especially in light of the fact that journalists themselves don't know very much about Congress to be perfectly honest, so they tend to over dramatize personalities and they don't have the background in the institution. Um, so, and I think our next sort of move in in, is to sort of go on and look at the political parties, I think will be our next. Mm -hmm. Um, and so thanks again for listening. And just as a, another shameless plug, dear reader, dear listeners. So my book, James Madison, America's first politician is now available. So if you would like to purchase a copy of that, I would appreciate it. Um, also if you have read the book and have enjoyed it and you, um, would like to, Uh, leave me a five-star review at Amazon. That would be uh, uh, tremendously appreciated. That actually adds up over time. Um, You know, like uh, Price of Greatness, for instance, has like a 4.7 star review on Amazon with like 50 reviews and it's in the editor's picks in history. So it just sort of helps create kind of a shelf life for the book. I'd really appreciate that. If you hate the book, uh, don't leave me a review. You can just write me a nasty (laughs) email and explain why the book was terrible. Um, but also if you, if you, um, have a hard copy of the book, I strongly encourage you to email me. It's completely free. J C O S T two, four, one at gmail.com. I will send you, uh, an autograph plate. Um, and if you want an inscription, that's fine. Just send proof of purchase and your uh, mailing address and an inscription request. I'd be more than happy to be delighted because I'm really excited to get the book out there. And the, uh, I've, I've tweeted photos of the um inscription plates i'm really pleased with how they turned out and then also if you um got an electronic copy or the audible book send me an email i can send you our old bonus episodes that we did for price of greatness all those years ago three years ago now Luke, can you believe that um
2: god that is that's a hard crazy to believe. isn't yeah.
1: it um so i on our sort of drunken kind of sloshy kind of ranking of the presidents, Uh, but then also we're planning to do, um, uh, we're going to do a history of the Democratic Party, I think we're going to record that episode this week, there'll be three parts, so I'll send those out as we, as we finish them, so if you'd like all that, look at all this bonus material available to our listeners, aren't we great, so just returning it out, yes, we are, so thank you everybody for listening, and we will, uh, we'll be with you, uh, next week to look at the committee system.